Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to be with Johan Rockström at the Stockholm Resilience Center. Thanks for inviting me, Johan, and welcome to my podcast. Thank you. Johan Rockström is a professor in environmental science at the Stockholm University and the executive director of Stockholm Resilience Center. He is an internationally recognized scientist for his work on global sustainability issues. He helped lead the internationally renowned team of scientists that presented the Planetary Boundaries Framework, a framework which is used to help guide governments, international organizations, NGOs and also companies that really focus on sustainable development. Yuan acts as an advisor to several governments and business networks. He's also advisor for sustainable development issues at international meetings, such as the United Nations General Assemblies and World Economic Forums. He also acts as chair of the advisory board for the EAT Foundation, a network that integrates knowledge on food, health and sustainability. And he appeared alongside Leonardo DiCaprio in the documentary film Before the Flood. Before talking about a more sustainable world, I want to kick off by asking you a more personal question. What is actually driving you and what is your dream? Mm. I think it's worth sharing that in, in different scales. I, I think I share what I would argue today is a universal dream, that uh, the beauty of nature, nature close to us, is something that enriches the quality of our lives and the quality of our families and the quality of our kin and network and friends. So I kind of have this uh, passion about uh, being a steward of planet Earth for humanity, not you know, altruistically to contribute to uh, a world that can thrive on planet Earth, but, but really also in terms of uh, just the very, very mundane day-to-day -day dream of having a good life for me and my family and my friends. But that does translate to, to a vision or a dream that um, to shift the entire uh, narrative on sustainability. We have for 50 years Actually, we should admit to ourselves, done a major mistake of always seeing the environment, protecting the environment, sustainability as a sacrifice. It's something you, you do the best you can, even if you are very aware and very willing to help, you focus on reducing environmental impacts because you sacrifice to, to protect the environment. And my dream is that the world shifts over based on all the science we have, to a future where sustainability is the pathway for success. That it's no longer a question of either or, it's a question of succeeding through sustainable pathways in the future. And this may sound um, quite obvious for many of us who have been following the sustainability agenda over the past 25 years, but it's certainly not in the mainstream. It's still, just listen to the political rhetoric from several countries in the world today, but of course most strongly and, and um, prominently, unfortunately, bassinated out by the Trump administration that environmental regulation threatens the economy and jobs, when in fact we have so much evidence that it's the other way around, that business as usual is the dead end. Business as usual, the unsustainable pathway, is what really threatens stability, economic growth, 
jobs and success in the future. And, and my dream is that we now tip over into a whole new renaissance where we recognize that, you know, us being stewards of our small, small planet is the pathway for the big world to succeed at all in the future. And that, that must be the, you know, I think that's the, the kind of the energy that drives me and many of my colleagues today. In one of your TED Talks I listened to yesterday, uh, you said that, yes, we do have major challenges and we're hitting the ceiling, but we do also have the knowledge and we have the technology to navigate a good solution. But it requires a very deep mind shift to reconnect societies to planet Earth. So my question is really, what needs to be done to provoke that kind of very deep mind shift uh, among companies? Mm. This is a very good question. And um And actually, in one way, a bit naively perhaps, the answer is very simple because uh, we're sitting on the best story in town. We're sitting in, in, in the narrative which should be the most attractive for any business leader in the world who wants to succeed on the markets of the future because we have overwhelming evidence that we are you know, running our overpowered world economic engine right across an escarpment of massive risks for business, for the economy, for all our societies. And at the same time, we know we have the solutions. And these solutions of transitioning to a decarbonized, healthy, clean energy system, of transitioning into healthy, sustainable, biosphere-adapted systems to produce food, design our cities, having technologies, circular economics systems, you know, all the solutions that can take us back to a safe operating space on Earth are largely through evidence, empirical evidence, on the table. So we have this fantastic story that can tell you today on scientific evidence that transforming your business to a sustainable future is a pathway to succeed with your business in the future and thereby also contributing to give humanity a chance on Earth. While the reverse story is the Mordor story. The Mordor story of just continuing as today, polluting, eroding, exploiting, and having Earth sending massive, potentially irreversible, even catastrophic invoices back, destabilizing nations and societies. And of course, to me, that narrative is, is so powerful and so attractive that the answer to your question of how do you actually accomplish a deep mindship among CEOs in business Well, listen to science and get that dialogue really going. So I think the pathway is really to get science and business to have much stronger partnerships, to have trust-based dialogues, and to start uh, you know, sharing this new evidence-based narrative with science. You know, and, and the reason why this is so important is that the actual solutions does not lie with science necessarily at all. Science is a kind of a, a diagnostic uh, partner But it's business that will then be able to take that science, place boundaries around his or her business models, and run with innovation pathways that can take us to solutions that actually stays within a phosphorus, water, soil, climate boundary. So it's, it's a true uh, partnership. Then, of course, one has to admit that we in academia has failed. We have failed in communicating the new narrative in a way that it's understood by by business and society at large. So I also think that we need to, uh, you know, very rapidly as a matter of urgency, communicate in new ways. We need to new, use all available pathways from podcasts to social media to digital platforms. We need to have alliances that we haven't seen before between 
artists, science and business. We need to have a young generation engaged. We have to create a, a kind of a, a renaissance that translates into a uh, almost like a revolutionary momentum of, uh, of sharing insights. And, and there, coming back to your first question, my dream is that, that, that this leads to uh, a success race. Many call it the green race, but it isn't really. It's, it's a race towards the future success where um, nobody wants to be left behind. Neither the finance sector nor any who would like to be left behind in the most exciting prosperity journey of all, which is the innovations towards a sustainable future. And, and somewhere this must happen. And of course, that mind shift finally has as one dimension that is, is so central, which is justice. I mean, fundamentally, we have to recognize that we are 7.4 billion co-citizens. We're soon 9 billion co-citizens. It's unavoidable. It's only in 30 years' time. And every citizen on planet Earth has the same right to a good life. And, and that has now been signed on by the United Nations, all countries, and the Sustainable Development Goals. So this is a, you know, a legal commitment we've all made for humanity. And of course, this, this uh, massive um, transition towards a, a, a fair and just future for humanity on Earth is, is also something that makes it impossible for the rich minority, which in fact is what it has been for the past 50 years, just to go on in an unsustainable way, over-consuming, over-exploiting, causing global risks, undermining the commons from climate to ice sheets to the oceans, in a way that uh, undermines the possibilities for all the poor citizens on Earth to have a chance. So, so that is in itself also another mind shift argument that, you know, if you as a business leader want to be successful in this globalized world, well, then we have to start being so smart that we give room for everyone. Do you have some examples of, of leaders who are transforming the business world in a, in a sustainable way? I would argue that today there are a large number of CEOs, chairs of boards, business leaders across all sectors that can be very good um, you know, role models or, or pole star leaders. I mean, just to give you a few examples, um, I had a chat uh, just a few weeks back with uh, Peter Agnefell, who is the CEO of IKEA, who um, clearly has transformed this global company, and not least through the founding father, Ingvar Kamprad, who has realized that um, sustainable business is simply the right thing to do. And therefore, that's the pathway for IKEA to succeed in the future. And they have taken steps towards becoming, you know, produce more energy than they consume and have circular business models on all their furniture. And uh, that's one example. You have um, in the retail food industry, people like Paul Polman, who 10 years, 15 years back now just decided that, you know, we're going to expand, but we're going to do it at a zero carbon footprint compared to what we have today. So we need circular business models and that filters through in the culture of the business. General Electrics does the same thing, you know, poses very clearly in its eco-initiative venture that it earns money on being more sustainable. It's actually a pathway for profit. Peter Bakker, the president of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, which is the network of, you know, the largest network of multinational companies for sustainability, no longer talks about sustainability as a, as a kind of a, a greenwashing or, or a corporate social responsibility. It is 
I would argue today, entirely incorporated as, as a core part of, of business strategy. And I can go on like this in the construction sector. In my small country in Sweden, we have uh, two very big you know, vehicle industries, Scania and Volvo. And Volvo happens to be one of the world's largest truck producers, given their partnership with Renault and, and Mack. And if you talk to their CEOs, um, Martin Lundstedt and Henrik Henriksson, and they're, they're entirely committed to really transform their businesses towards renewable fuels and renewable or circular models for uh, resource-efficient production of a vehicle transport systems. And so I think we're, you know, that's why I'm, I'm despite the, the risks we're facing, despite the turbulence in the political uh, reality in the world, I think there is significant and real light in the tunnel, given that we, I think we can start arguing that we've tipped over already, that, that sustainability is starting to become, you know, almost an inevitable pathway. To me, the question is increasingly not whether we will have sustainable business in the future. The question is, will it happen fast enough for us to avoid very dangerous climate risks, for example? So, so that's, uh, I think it's kind of almost an inevitable shift. Now the challenge is not to convince a business leader that we have climate change or that we have biodiversity loss. The question is more to find the innovation solutions and get the scale to really have an indent at the global market level so that we start having real scaled impact so that we stand a chance of, of deviating from big risks. Coming back to you, uh, what uh, turning points in your life have influenced you the most? Hmm. Yeah, that's a very difficult question. I, I think there are many incremental steps, let's put it that way, rather. I mean, I already as a, as a student at, at University of Cultural Sciences in Uppsala, I realized that uh, global food production is a, is a fundamental determinant of having any chance for humanity on planet Earth, because food is the number one, the single largest cause behind both climate change, water use, eutrophication, and biodiversity loss. And at that point, I had this kind of life moment experience of, um, of uh, colliding with Professor Malin Falkenmark, who is one of the world's leading um, international hydrologists. And, and, and she opened a door to me on, uh, on the connections between humanity, water, and food. And, um, and, and we have been working together since, actually. She's only 93 years old today, but we're still um, co-authoring uh, scientific papers together. So that was a life-changing moment in the, in the late 1980s for me. I've had this opportunity then to enter the whole uh, resilience ecosystem sphere with um, colleagues like uh, Professor Carl Folke, whom I'm working with very closely today. So I think my, my kind of moments um, have been incremental steps in my learning journey, having the privilege of working with uh, fantastic colleagues around the world. The establishment of the Stockholm Resilience Center in 2007 is, is one such step, uh, no doubt. But then I must say also that um, my, my 15 years, essentially, of working on the ground in Africa with uh, innovations in small-scale farming on water management and, and you know, trying to really get water scarcity to be manageable for food security among the poorest and most vulnerable communities in uh, in Niger, in Burkina Faso, in Mali, in Kenya, in Zimbabwe, have, you know, touched me a lot. And, and that connection between, you know, being so locally rooted 
in, in the real life of the poorest communities and at the same time, you know, working as a scientist at the planetary scale has been not only a turning point, but also, uh, I think, has, has enriched, uh, you know, my engagement in these questions. If we assume uh, for a moment that you have all doors open and you have all possible resources available, uh, what would you then innovate or, or change first? Mm. Well, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think, um, well, to start with, if I had, let's say, infinite tools available, then I would um, immediately uh, embark on a, on, a, on a global learning campaign on the new mind shift. I mean, I would, I would try to get every co-citizen on planet Earth to share the new narrative of a transformation towards human prosperity within a safe operating space on Earth as, as a kind of a core, uh, like our new Bible, uh, in, in kind of reconnecting our own future to planet Earth. And then I would um, immediately jump on, uh, on the two biggest and most urgent challenges we're facing and, and simply solve them. <laughs> and one is to decarbonize the world energy system. And the second one is to you know, ensure that we have innovations through a new agricultural revolution to ensure that we have healthy and sustainable food for all people on Earth. And so that, that, that is what I would like to... Um, let's say, orchestrate, if, if that was a possibility. And then, of course, I could go on for another hour to talk about <laughs> all the policy steps that would have to happen. Um, a global price on carbon of 100 euros per ton of carbon dioxide, for example, which we've had in Sweden since 1990, but no other country has. How I would like to see um, a strengthened um, Security Council in the United Nations to give them the, the mandate and the power to... Uh, be wise stewards of regulatory mechanisms for planet Earth. I think it's quite embarrassing that we have a Security Council that focuses only on, um, you know, on war, war and war and, uh, and kind of geopolitical short-term issues, while not discussing the most important issue of all, namely the risks of undermining the security. This is the Security Council, after all, the security of nations because of totally, you know, disrupting the stability of the climate, of the biological cycle, of the freshwater, of the sea level rise, of biodiversity. How can we not understand that we do not have any environmental problems in this world at all? It is all about humanity. It is all about security. And, um, and that, that's what I would, you know, really, you know, then mastermind if that was a possibility. I think we actually should seriously consider reconfiguring our, um, our, our whole Bretton Woods system and, and recognize that we have to have a kind of a stewardship of planet Earth council, which, um, which must have the trust and, and be democratically put in place. But that we've come to this point, we, we can no longer keep our head in the sand and, and, and believe that we still are, are this very small world on a big, big planet. Now we are a big, big world on a very small planet. And we are affecting every square meter, every system, and we are hitting the ceiling to a point where we need to become, what I always say in my lectures, planetary stewards. And how can we create that planetary stewardship mechanism for us to do that? I mean, it's not as if we're not trying that has to be very well uh, 
recognize. I mean, the, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is an attempt. The United Nations Convention for Biodiversity is an attempt. Uh, the, the Montreal Protocol was not only an attempt, it was a successful mm-hmm. pathway to avoid a potential irreversible disaster by uh, depleting the stratospheric ozone layer. So it isn't as if we have not started and have even attempted to do this, but now we need to do it encompassing all the environmental parameters and we need to do it in a way that no longer is about protecting the environment here and being successful in the economy here, but rather saying that protecting planet Earth is the pathway for the economy to work. We have to put the economy inside the planet, not above. Let's imagine you have a microphone linked to the ears of all company leaders globally. What is the one single thing you want to tell them? No, the science is is your insider information. Mm. And if you read science carefully, you will see the writing on the wall, which is the sustainability is the pathway for business success. And it's not sustainability in terms of writing one sustainability report each year. It is about totally integrating circular pathways, decarbonizing your business, zero loss of biodiversity, right at the heart of your business models and do it along the entire supply chain. So it's not enough just to try and do some offsetting here or having some electric cars in your business. It is about reshaping your entire business model And this is the writing on the wall, because the companies that do this may have a little hump over the first 10 years, but I foresee that these will be the successful companies in the future. Not only because they will be more efficient, because resource prices will start increasing, but also because the millennials demand it. You know, our kids demand it. Our kids will not accept that we cut off the branch that we all as humanity depend on. So there is a, a very powerful insider story that I would, I would urge every business leader to take part of. And it is insider information still. So you can actually gain quite a lot of listening. So what do you think the world needs most at this time? Well, this, if we talk about the most urgent step that is needed right now is to you know, fully endorse the Sustainable Development Goals that the world nations have adopted and to start operationalize it, to start delivering on the agreement that we're going to eradicate all hunger, eradicate all poverty, secure good economic development and have equity, democracy and good lives for everyone within planetary boundaries. This is an agreement. This now needs to be operationalized and the world needs to take that on in full. And, and I would argue that the most urgent step that the world then needs to take in the immediate is to adopt a global price on carbon, to give the right incentive to the business leadership in the world and the markets to decarbonize. And finally, I, I really am you know, convinced that we need to start sharing uh, the new narrative of the prosperity for humanity in a sustainable future within the safe operating space on Earth. Now, this narrative needs to be you know, adapted and shared by different sectors, different businesses, different nations. So I think we all need to help each other to shift you know, from the old, old story that environment is something you sacrifice by dealing with when you can afford it, to sustainability being the pathway to succeed. And, and, and every business voice is a powerful voice in that journey. Thank you, Yuan, for sharing. It has been a true pleasure and very valuable. To find out more about Johan Rockström and his work, 
head to stockholmresilience.org. And you can also follow him on Twitter, Jay Rockström. J-R-O-C-K-S-T-R-O-M. Uh, is there anything you want to add, Johan? No, thanks uh, a lot for this um, very good podcast dialogue. Thank you for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Unplug.